I'm charging my laser. This week on the Eldritch Lawcast. How do you find your tabletop RPG news? Ben, I am the news. Rascal, a a new tabletop RPG news website. Something that is kind of reporting with integrity. Wizards of the Coast have decided that uh, they will no longer be translating their books into Portuguese. It's really more of an economic issue than a role-playing game issue. Candela Obscura is getting its fourth season. It's what you think every time, every time you're like, this time it's going to be real. Dragon Friends is starting a new season soon uh, with its new GMs, Tom Cardi and Eden Lacey. I'm a huge Dragon Friends fan. Dragon Friends is the reason I actually got into D&D. All that and more right now, baby! Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one source of tabletop RPG news if you like your news reheated, that's right. You don't want that fresh spaghetti. You want to <laughs> pop it in the microwave at least a day or two later and warm it up because uh, fresh news is too hot. Uh, this is the old news podcast for your tabletop RPG sources. My name is Ben Byrne. I am joined, as always, by Sean Merwin at Dale Kingsmill and stepping in for James Hake this week. Welcome back to the Lawcast, Luna Lou Boffin. Welcome. Hello, thank you. Luna, I've got a question for you, which is, uh, how do you find your tabletop RPG news? With a deep uh, feeling of horror in my soul, it is Twitter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the only place I get news and stay on top of things, even though I know Twitter is not great for me and I shouldn't be on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're we're all we're all slaves to the mm. to the 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 Roman Empire of um yes uh, of uh, although now it's like the Eastern Roman Empire, not the Western Roman Empire, because that f- I don't know which sides are where. Anyway, this is Dale Kingsmill too in depth. <laughs> yeah, the How the analogy is getting away day from me. Do you think about the Roman Empire, Ben? Oh, I did, I did not even realize that was a thing when my wife asked me, and I was like, <laughs> look, at least once a week, like genuinely, I'm not even like, and in fact, when she asked me that question, I was like. I can't. I, I cannot only just give you an estimate of how often I think about the Roman Empire. I can tell you the last time I thought about the Roman Empire and the exact reason why I was thinking about the Roman Empire. But that is neither here nor there. Dale Kingsbury, where do you get your tabletop RPG news from? <laughs> I get my tabletop RPG news from this podcast. <laughs> I find out every week when Ben sends me a run sheet and I go, "What's happening?" and I Google it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> So you know you're you're in good hands, folks. <laughs> Great, awesome. Uh, that that's that's uh, good to know. Sean Merwin, what about your fine self? Ben, I am the news. I know the news before the news even happens. <gasps> that was such a boss answer. Uh, it's generally Dang. wrong, but I know it. No, I, I well, mean, when you're in the sort of freelance, not in the industry, but sort of on the edges of the industry, and you talk with people. There have been so many times when something's been reported and I know it's absolutely false and it's being accepted by everyone as the God's honest truth. And since I'm under NDA or I would be betraying a confidence, I just have to sit there and nod my head. And, (laughs) And so it's, where do I get to news? I get to news from the same place everyone else does everywhere. And that means that sometimes you are on the cutting edge and you know exactly what's happening. And sometimes you are two months behind and you have no clue what's happening. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who report the news are in the exact same boat that we are. Uh, so that's okay. 
Mastering Dungeons. Often I listen to that after the fact and I'm like, how did they know about it? Where did they learn about that? Ah, oh, that would have been great for the Lawcast run sheet. It's a shame that we record on the same day um, uh, because I would love to know um, where that news, where you'd get your breaking news. Uh, but I guess <laughs> now I know. Speaking of news... Let's dive in because there is a new source of tabletop RPG news that has arrived on the scene. Uh, Rascal is a new... Rascal? Rascal? I don't know if that's an Australianism. I have two ways that I pronounce that. You'd say Rascal, Dale? What would you say? Rascal. Okay. Well, let's go Rascal. Uh, Rascal uh, is a new tabletop news... Rascal feels too castle for me. Yeah, I think that's the distinction. Rascal in a castle. (laughs) Rascal. Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, that is also the name of a, a new tabletop RPG news website, which has been recently founded by Lynn Codega, Rowan Zioli, and Chase Carter, uh, three luminaries within the uh, gaming media landscape, uh, having come from uh, you know previous websites such as uh, uh, oh, I'm going to get the name of this wrong. Is it IO9? Um, uh, uh, Dicebreaker, I believe, um, uh, which is uh, websites that I've used in the past. Um, and this is kind of cool. Has anybody checked out Rascal? Rascal? Either either of them? I went to the site. I gave it a look. It looks like there are some interesting articles there. It is behind a paywall, or some of them are. So uh, mm-hmm. you will need to get a subscription if you want to read the whole thing. I, I really hope it works out and that it does become, you know, a journalistic integrityized is it what's the what's the uh what's the word i'm looking for where you have integrity <laughs> i hope it reports with integrity and doesn't turn into because it needs more revenue like can you believe how watsy ruined D again you know that mm-hmm. sort of thing but if anything uh we've learned over the last few years it's that's what sells and so mm. If that's the way it goes, it won't surprise me. I just hope it doesn't. I signed up for the the paid membership. Yeah, just because I, I had the same feeling of like, yeah, I would love to see, um, yeah, something that is kind of reporting with integrity. And I think, you know, especially given the whole OGL stuff, which does, you know, it was quite a while now, but like I remember just so many, you know, people who are not reporters jumping on and jumping into the mix and being like, here's what's happening. And, you know, I think people sometimes... YouTubers especially I mean I'm a YouTuber so I feel like I can say this but like forget that like you know journalists have degrees like it's a it's a trained specialized field and just sort of Mm. repeating what you've heard is not journalism you know it can um and it can lead to a lot of problems which it did like there was a lot of misinformation and misreporting um that was you know quite harmful in a lot of ways so I'm 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 the same I'm optimistic I hope it's going to be good um and Lincoln Edgar was of course the person who sort of broke the news with a journalistic article about OGL. So, yeah. Yeah. It is it is like citizen journalism has its place. Absolutely. Yes. I'm never going to knock citizen journalism, except for right now when I agree with what Luna said. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's just it's just nice as well to, to have um, people who, to at least some extent, know what they're doing, doing the thing that they know how to do. Um, yeah, I also, I just love, you know, um, creator owned, uh, worker owned, uh, initiatives sure. like this. Um, and it's the sort of thing that, um, you know, you have to fund in some way. So I, I don't, uh, begrudge them putting it behind a paywall. It is going to be interesting to see how they try to balance, um, the sort of 
come to me, the bait of like, come and come and come and join us, come and pay our subscription. Um, <laughs> because you do need something to draw people in in order to, you know, uh, build up the good faith to get people to subscribe to um, a, a paid service like that. Um, but potentially, by the sounds of things, could be a worthwhile thing for people to support. So I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. It's important to remember, too, that even trained professional journalists with 20 years experience are sometimes bad at what they do. Mm, that's uh, true. <laughs> the people who I've dealt with over the years who have been interviewed by real newspapers and real journalists who are misquoted, who are right misrepresented, is is it's a high number. The percentage is way up there. So even those trained people have a hard time always getting it right. So if you don't have that training, it just tends to be even harder uh, to to hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I, I am interested by their business model. Um, uh, I think it's great having something that is uh, kind of, you know, as you said, Dale, worker-owned, um, but how they lure people in to want to engage with their work at the moment, the, it's kind of based on the this promise of, um, you know, authentic reporting and real journalism and, and uh, you know, inquiring rather than just kind of uh, trying to grab onto uh, the most clickbaitable stuff and, and throw it on a YouTube channel to draw views. Um, I think this kind of behind a paywall um, uh, kind of uh, business model that they've gone for, I don't know whether that de-incentivizes kind of uh, rage baiting or it incentivizes right, rage baiting. Because they're not, they're not based on clicks, so it's not about yeah. sensationalizing and getting the, the highest number of clicks, but you do still have to do something that makes people want to take that leap and, and pay. I like that we've been yeah. calling it lore and bait. It makes it sound so <laughs> sinister. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if it necessarily is sinister. Yeah, I, well, I, I have think to see. Maybe it uh, is. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I, I I'm think not that, a journalist. <laughs> so far, this is a, a net positive um, because you know the more uh, currently for for folks' interest, you know where I tend to source a lot of the uh, information is generally reading a couple of different articles on the same subject. So I've got a couple of different perspectives, and it's usually from places like uh, ComicBook.com, Dicebreaker. Um, I think it's wargamer.com, uh, EN World, uh, I tend to use a lot. Um, and so having another source like that, um, I think is, is really, uh, positive because I tend not to go to YouTube channels for news and information, um, for reasons that have, we have discussed in the past. Um, so yeah, net, net positive. Uh, I'll be interested to see how this goes and, and the sort of articles that they start to do because Michael I think- Michael in uh, chat is pointing out as well, there's not really that different from journalists on Patreon, uh, which is true. Sure. Sure. That's true. Yeah. I think the difference is when I think of like, we have a couple of, um, Australia centric news reporting, and this is not in the tabletop RPG space. This is like, I'm thinking of like, you know, Michael West media, um, friendly Geordies who, if you're not in Australia, you might not know who these people are, at least not the first one, who are Patreon-backed, um, but their videos, for the most part, are still free to watch. What's interesting to me about Rascal is that it's uh, almost completely paywalled unless it's something that's been contributed by the community, like saying, like, hey, this product is launching or whatever. 
from what I've seen on their website so far. So that to me, how, how are they going to find that balance in terms of ensuring that the public have access to information, which they're not entitled to necessarily, you know, people aren't entitled to journalists' work um, uh, uh, for the sake of it, but just saying there's maybe a balance there to be struck. I don't know. I'll be interested. I'll be interested to see how it develops. I, was, I feel like maybe what they'll do is once they have enough of a base, they'll probably will release some articles publicly because I feel like that's the sure. only way you're going to get people in, you know? And I will be interested to see. I think what you'll see a lot more on there is those kind of editorial or deep dive stories, kind of like what Morris did last week uh, on uh, Evil Genius Games um, that kind of unfold an entire topic rather than just like, regurgitating the the talking points at you after giving you a bunch of SEO lead in, you know, that's like Dungeons and Dragons did another thing with their fifth edition community convention, Gen Con, you know, just like as many SEO in the first two paragraphs as possible and then get to the actual nut of the information. Speaking of the proliferation of information, uh, unfortunately, uh, Wizards of the Coast has chosen not to proliferate the information of how to play their game in the language that is Portuguese. Oh, um, I see where we're going. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're changing topic, <laughs> um, uh, which is sad news. Uh, we, to, to put that in more plain speech, Wizards of the Coast have decided that uh, they will no longer be translating their books into Portuguese, um, which is a shame because it comes less than two years after Wizards of the Coast kind of proudly announced that they would be translating their books into various different languages, including Portuguese. Um, and they are citing largely that uh, it's a, a difficult decision um, due to the rising costs and shifts in global demand, which I think in plain speak is, um, you know, folks in Brazil uh, predominantly um, were not able to create enough market demand for it to be um, worth Wizards' investment. I'm a little surprised that they only cut Portuguese if they were going to cut, um, you know, different language versions of the books. Uh, I maybe would have expected to see Japanese cut as well, um, just because there's a similar, I, I know that the culture of tabletop RPGs in Japan is just so vastly different from uh, a lot of Western cultures and their relationship with tabletop RPGs. So I, I don't know. I'm a little surprised that it's only Portuguese. I'm sad for the Brazilian fans. Uh, yeah. It's really more of an economic issue than a role-playing game issue. A $70 book in Brazil is 350 Brazilian real. Uh, and if your average monthly salary is 8,000 or 8,000 real, there, there you go. Uh, and that's not anything. Wiz Wizards can't change the economy of, you know, South America, unfortunately. And they're having troubles of their own, uh, which is why we're seeing the book still being translated into places where the economic, whatever you want to call it, balance would still allow people to buy the product. I wonder which of these kind of markets in terms of translations are growing markets as opposed to, uh, I don't know this, but like, is it a, because Japan, Japan has a very different RPG culture, but my understanding is they have a relatively strong RPG culture. Definitely strong. It's just that, um, so my understanding of it, and, you know, it's been a while since I read about this, but my understanding of it is that um, in particular, uh, Japan came to uh, sort of traditional tabletop RPGs after video games 
Whereas yeah. uh, in the West, it tended, it was like tabletop RPGs, then video games took after tabletop RPGs, and now they're kind of influencing each other. In Japan, it very much is video games have influenced tabletop RPGs. And then on top of that, the um, space available to like someone's private home doesn't tend to be big enough to have like six of your friends come over and you play for hours on end, right? So instead, uh, a lot of the time, tabletop RPGs tend to be played in public spaces and they tend to be based um, around, you know, one session. We're going to get together at this place and we're going to play this game and it will be done at the end, right? It's like a one-shot kind of culture as far as my understanding goes, um, whereas sure. D&D pushes for the, you know, long-term campaign. I don't know how to end that, so we're just going to... Uh, do a segue, segue, Do boy. a segue. All right, Do it well, in Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> I look, I'm going to be real honest. I do not speak any of these other languages except for the tiniest bit of French. Um, yes, because... I thought you were going to say the tiniest bit of English. <laughs> <laughs> Sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Speaking of getting things, Candela Obscura is getting its fourth season. Uh, starting on the anniversary of the live stream of Candela Obscura um, with a new live play. Um, Luna, have you been keeping up with Candela Obscura specifically? I'm not assuming oh, no. you have been. Yeah, no, I I mean, no, I haven't actually. And I think it's just because um, I find it hard when I, like, I'm already trying to keep up with so for people who are watching who don't know, I make a lot of content about Critical Role. So um, I try and keep up with the main show every week. It's like five hours a week. Plus, I often have to watch bits multiple times if I'm making a video or if I'm doing a stream mm. on a particular topic. Um, so, yeah, it's just a lot to keep on top of. Plus, on top of that, the like horror genre is definitely not my favorite. I'm a scaredy cat and <laughs> um, especially like body horror, which some of the seasons have included. Um, so, yeah, for that reason, too, I haven't really been keeping up with it. I keep meaning to like I watched the first two seasons. Uh, first two like chapters um right and i thought the second chapter was incredible it was really amazing watching spencer who's one of the writers of the game mm. uh gm because obviously you know he knows the system back to front um so that was really fun to see it played um yeah in that way and it was a great great season so but yeah i haven't i haven't kept up with i didn't watch a bria season unfortunately not yet but maybe at some point <laughs> <laughs> this is just hard um, it's too much to listen and watch and you know so many uh, great shows uh, out there no, absolutely. And and live plays are, are such a demand on time, as you've said, that, you know, even I think I've said before, season two of Critical Role, I was like, all right, I'm in from the beginning this time. I'm going to start. I'm going to keep up with it. And by episode three or four, I was already like hours <laughs> behind. It's what you think um, every time, every yeah. time you're like, this time it's going to be real. And then, I don't know, you have one doctor's appointment at the wrong time one week or a class changes right, time. Suddenly, right. suddenly you're out. You're out of the loop. You don't know what's going on and you can't catch up. Um, but I actually think that that's a, a big factor. I don't think it's just Lunar. I think, uh, you know, you look at the the numbers of a lot of Critical Role one-shots or, or their sort of side series rather than the main campaign that they do. Mm. And the numbers don't show up until later. They do show yeah. up. People do go back and watch those things eventually, but it's just a, a factor of like, if there's a, a week uh, where Critical Role Live is doing a one shot instead of the main campaign, I think a lot of people use that time to catch up on an episode of, of the main campaign if they're behind, you know? I, I think that um, you, you tend to see kind of a delay in the numbers for uh, their shows other than other than the main campaign. But, but even then, the numbers are still big. These are still very, very successful live play 
shows mm. and particularly mm. with the candela obscura seasons because they're they're pumping them out pretty pretty dang quick um and they're only three episode you know little arcs so so people can when they have a a little gap when they have the opportunity they can go back and watch them and catch up um and and the the production quality is still just so high so it's you know yeah i mean i have to assume that that, that they're doing pretty well uh to justify the the production quality because candela obscura just looks amazing you know it's full costume full set it's no longer you think about back in the geek and sundry days when it was kind of like uh, some bookshelves in the background, you know, kind of like the this. The audio is always nice. a question mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, whereas these are, you know, or virtually, they could, the only thing that they could do to change it, to make it more like, you know, like an actual scripted TV is to just move the tables, just take the tables out of it and have them fully LARPing it and uh, <laughs> you'd, you'd basically be watching TV at that yeah. point or, or scripted television. I mean, keep in mind as well that this is the strongest ad campaign they have. It's a, it's an ad that they don't have to pay any more for really than they would ordinarily be paying, right? This is this is this is money generating content that is also marketing for their game that is generating sure. money. So um it's just a smart decision as well. Is the marketing for the game making more money than the game? <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a very that's, good point. That's the that's the million dollar question that's out there is making role playing games is not the way to make a million dollars or mm. whatever, right? It's not the way to make a living. It's not, there are more people probably making money doing actual plays than there are people making money making role-playing game books. And so yeah. I'm like, it seems like putting the cart before the horse or just, you know, just getting rid of the cart and just ride the horse. It's diversifying. They're diversifying their income, Sean. <laughs> oh, 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 it's it's an investment portfolio. I see. Thank you, Dale. Yeah. <laughs> well, wow. I also wonder, too, how much of it is. It feels like, yeah, a lot of the energy and, like, passion is going to Candela. Not to say that they're not investing that in their main campaign, but, like, Candela, yeah, the production value is massive. And I wonder if it's just kind of, you know, you get to a point where they're, like, making a lot, a lot of money off of their main campaign and they're like, well, we've, I want to make this cool, weird horror show that maybe not that many Hell people yeah. are going to watch, but I got the money. Like, you know, so maybe they're <laughs> just yeah. kind of, <laughs> Why not? You know, at some point, I <laughs> think as a creative, it. you need to branch out to keep things interesting for yourself. And I've always wondered about how long Critical Role is going to keep going with the same cast and the same format. You know, I mean, I think eventually people are going to burn out. It's been 10 years now. Um, so I think, you know, maybe part of it is just like, if even if this doesn't make much money, like we need to do something different. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. It's also a yeah. great way of, of feeding into the audience. Here's a bunch of other people. Look mm-hmm. at all these other people who are sometimes yes, our cast. Don't you Ooh. like these people? Aren't they great? Wouldn't it be great to see more of them? them? <laughs> what if they, yeah, exactly. So that yeah. they have a little bit more of that wiggle room to, um, to bring people in and out as, uh, as the main cast probably, <laughs> probably desires. It, it has been a long time. Yeah. I've always maintained that I think, yeah, campaign four or maybe maybe not to campaign five, but like we're going to see a car shake up because I just don't think they can oh, yeah. sustain it for forever. Sure. You Completely know. agree. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, this, this, uh, in chat, someone named ZS Dante, I have no idea who that might be, uh, said, weirdly, the game could be understood as a type of merch. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, I'm pretty sure a lot of critics don't know who have played it. It's the most expensive merch you're ever going to make. To, to get, right? Making a role playing game book is like not like making a t shirt or a pin or, or something like that, right? It's 
hugely <laughs> time consuming and expensive. And so, yes, I guess that is true. Um, well, that's way. fine. They just, uh, why make an RPG book when you can just use someone else's RPG book? <coughs> Blades oh. in the Dark. Oh. Oh, I kid, I kid, I kid. <laughs> we got to get out of here. The snipers are coming. Um. <laughs> no, I, I, I do kid because genuinely I want to try playing Candela Obscura. I almost did at one point grab that that quick play kind of thing they had up on their website for a while um, and just never, it never materialized, never happened. I think we had the whole group together, so we played our regular campaign. I enjoyed it. Um, I, I, again, I've had to say this every single time, I've never played Bleeds in the Dark. So I, right. <laughs> I'm not a good person to, to like weigh in on that front. But as far as uh, the game, it's, it's funny. I read the rules for it and I was like, oh, mm, I don't know. Some of this sounds, ooh. but in, in actual practice, um, I had a, a good time with the system. Uh, it sure. was fun. I only played it the once, um, but no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed how uh, the rolling of the dice felt and the book is pretty and has pretty pictures in it. So that's my review. The artwork is very nice. Yeah, the book I is mean, gorgeous. It's not, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not sort of overly produced, you know, that, that artwork that they marketed, I think, the book with initially of the lady with her skin falling off or something. That's not like a – it's a very expressionistic piece that I quite like, you know. It's, um, uh, it's not overly done. I have a question for you, Luna. You might not know the answer to it, and that's fine if you don't. But I am curious um, – We only kind of a couple of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is, where's Daggerheart? Like, da- uh, mm. where is it? You know, well, I, I not- assume maybe later this year. I don't think it's due until twenty twenty five. Oh, uh, really? You're expecting a very quick turnaround on yeah, Daggerheart, Ben? I'm pretty sure it's yeah, it's not due for quite a while. Um, I <laughs> this always gets me in trouble, but I'm of the opinion that they're going to launch it at the same time as they launch the next campaign, which will probably use it as their system. But that's just yes. my opinion. Uh, I you know I could totally I be wrong. Completely agree. But why does that I get don't you understand in why they would Every spend as Sean theory, says. <laughs> yeah. It's I'm like yes, yes. But you know, as Sean says, it, it takes a lot of time and money and like paying people and playtesting and you know to make a game. Why make a game that they've specifically said is designed for long-term campaigns and then not use it for their famous long-term campaign show. So, you know, so I wonder if they're going to try and release it at the same time or release it after the next campaign starts so that people see it in action a little bit. But I'm sure they probably want to see if it's received well before they totally hedge their bets on changing from D&D. But but because the show is the main source of marketing, the best marketing they can get. It's You know what it is? It's that the tabletop RPG industry and the tabletop RPG entertainment industry are two different things. It's mm-hmm. a sure. little symbiotic creature, but they are different things. Or is releasing the RPG marketing for the live play? ¿Por qué no los dos? Um, uh, <laughs> right, yeah, okay. I, d- I didn't realise it was so far away, and it's maybe because they released um, Candela Obscura so quickly after that live play uh, kind of happened that I was expecting mm-hmm. Blades and uh, – sorry, Daggerheart. Oh, <laughs> whoa, that was almost <laughs> a, a slip of the tongue. I was expecting uh, Daggerheart a little bit sooner. E- okay, here's my, my follow-up question, which is I-, I agree with you. I assumed that they would also start their next campaign with Daggerheart as their system. I don't know why that opinion would get you in trouble. I'm kind of intrigued by that. But my actual question is uh, Daggerheart appears to have not only s- it, it self-contained specific rules, 
but also species uh, uh, and kind of, you know, player options that seem specific to a world setting that is not D&D. Yes. Uh, from some of the Exandria, cards I've seen. From what I can well, tell that either. was my question. Was, yeah. was it Exandria? Well, I, I must admit, I haven't kept up a lot with Daggerheart stuff. I know um, Bob Wheelbuilder has, like, did a lot of playtests and has sure, put out yeah, some really yeah. great videos and interviewed the designers and stuff. But um, I haven't got around to watching them. But, um, yeah, from what I can see, just from the stuff that I've seen briefly, it doesn't seem to be Exandria, which, yeah, is really curious to me because I don't think they're done with Exandria yet. I wonder mm. if the game will come with a setting... And then there'll be like an Exandria supplement or something, you know, like. Right, right. Well, Exandria is in, you know, fifth edition. Like they have multiple Exandrian books in fifth edition now. So. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I'm not sure how that's going to like intersect. There is a, a tension there between which I'm I'm thinking about right now as we kind of go into the next design phase of, um, of Grim Hollow, which is the system is not the world. The system is a set of tools for constructing the world, which means that what is left, like of the system, what you don't use doesn't necessarily exist in the world, right? Um, if you're constructing your campaign in a specific way. And yet the system uh, informs the world so much that it can feel incongruous to have the wrong system for the wrong world, so to speak, which is why when I was seeing the alternative species in Daggerheart, I was like, it, it, it looks like from a design perspective, from a game design perspective, and from a creative perspective, you want a reason for Daggerheart to exist and and a reason for it to separate itself from 5th edition D&D. If it's doing the same Tolkien-esque elves, dwarves, halflings, gnomes, orcs, you know, if it's doing that same thing, um, which Daggerheart doesn't appear to be doing as a way to potentially differentiate itself more from um, 5e worlds... Um, but if it's not Exandria, uh, uh, you know, anyway, I'm just kind of pontificating, to be honest, at the moment. But um, Did you listen to the Mastering Dungeons recording that we did a few hours ago? Because we <laughs> talked about world building and systems, and you just summed up everything that we talked about in like oh, really? two and a half minutes. So <laughs> no, don't, you don't need well, to listen the- to Mastering Dungeons this week. You could just listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 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 glad. Uh, I I didn't, but this these thoughts were coming because I was watching a video. I can't remember the name of the YouTuber at the moment, so I slightly apologize to this person. But their video was about how you can't do low magic in five e beat for for various reasons, and I disagree with some of their reasons. And I think they've also got some very good points. But it made me. I'm in fact, I asked this in the Lawcast chat a couple of weeks ago, which was, is the system the world, or is the world, um. Or or, or or does the system inform the world? Because there's a lot of like, you know, try this in your fifth edition game to have it make it take a more dark fantasy bent. And the reply is, well, that doesn't work because this exists in the system. And it's like, well, don't well then don't use, use that. that in the system. You know, like yeah. you, you, right. you know, it doesn't just because this spell exists in the rule book doesn't mean it has to exist somewhere in the world of the game if the GM hasn't kind of introduced it right. in or if the players haven't okay. asked so for it's, it. So it's cyber culture, again, it's phenomenology again, right? It's, it's <laughs> your, your, you are phenomenologically experiencing the game world, but your method of doing that cyborg style is via these dice mechanics and these rules that you agree to abide by. Sure. Um, and the thing is that you can rearrange them. Like I got in so much trouble from so many people when I made that video saying, yeah, you could, of course, you could do 80s teen horror in D&D. I haven't written any new rules. I've just 
rearranged and chosen yeah. mm-hmm. what rules to include. And there you go. It feels like 80s slasher horror instead of high fantasy. Um, so, yes, basically, I agree with what Ben is saying. <laughs> yeah, I should go watch that video, actually, because I've got a similar one coming up. But anyway, I digress. Let us move on. Uh, speaking of live plays, Andy has sent in a question. A uh, long-time listener, Andy, has sent in a question, and this is kind of news slash listener email, uh, which is that uh, Dragon Friends, an Australian actual play podcast, uh, is starting a new season soon uh, with its new GMs, uh, the recently thrust on the tabletop RPG stage, uh, world stage, Tom Cardi uh, and Eden Lacey, uh, who is a Dragon Friends regular. Uh, for folks that don't recognize that name immediately, you almost certainly will when I say that Tom Cardi uh, was the musician who did that D&D themed song, like I want to say a month or two ago that I got sent like seven times and I'm sure you all <laughs> did too. Um, uh, about uh, three party members on the road. They come across uh, a short uh, foe, fireballs are cast, uh, regrets were had. Uh, is that a good enough explanation of what I'm talking about here? I mean, you might also know him from such classic hits as Have You Checked Your Butthole? Um, right. um, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I'm a huge Dragon Friends fan. Dragon Friends is the reason I actually got into D&D. It was the very first podcast I ever listened to before I'd played, or D&D podcast I listened to before I played. And I was like, because the whole premise in the first season is it's a bunch of comedians who literally have never played D&D, have no idea how to play it. And then the only people who know are the two, because they have two Dungeon Masters. And uh, I listened to it and I was like, wow, like it was so dumb and silly. And I was like, oh, D&D is not as serious as I thought it was going to be. Like, and it really made me super excited. Yeah. So um, I'm a huge Dragon Friends fan. I've sort of fell behind quite a few seasons, but I'm slowly trying to catch back up again. But yeah, it's great. I highly recommend it to everyone. It has a lot of Australian swearing is the only warning I give. It has an Australian <laughs> level of swearing. Australian swearing. Okay. Australian swearing. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to know whether, I mean, maybe someone here knows or someone in chat knows whether this means Dave Harmon will be playing in the next uh, season or whether it means mm. that he's taken a break. Like, what's up with that? Hmm? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. I haven't heard. Yes, yeah, so they've put out an overly long, um, by their own admittance, uh, intro trailer that uh, <laughs> demonstrates why none of the other cast can take on the, the GMing roles um, this season. So I would guess that he will be a player uh, and avoid the stress of the GMing role, but I, I don't know. I think he's just that. had another kid, though, so he could be taking a break. Uh-huh. I know a lot of the cast have been having babies recently, so. You know, yeah. that is just like our generation uh, <laughs> problem that we're going through right now is that all our friends have started having babies, and that is uh, a beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing that kills D&D campaigns. No, I love, I love having a friend with a baby at the D&D table when they're like, oh, is it okay if I bring the baby? I'm like, that, for me, as a DM, that brings my stress level way down. Oh, because really? Because it just, if there's a cat on the table, if there's a baby who's hungry, it always makes things just like such a, such an easy vibe for me because it's like, oh, great. Everything's already chaos. So right. no one's going to notice if I stuff up. It genuinely, deeply, mm-hmm. I, my friend Kit, if if you're out, you're not listening to this, but if you are, thank <laughs> you so much for bringing your baby to D&D. <laughs> Uh, my kid is just getting old enough to start playing. He's um, seven. And so we don't really play D&D, but we sort of play D&D light. And he um, 
he's not very good at taking turns yet. You know, he's still learning about like, it's not about winning. It's about working together as a team. Um, so it's a very, it's a fun little challenge. And kids are so fun to play with, like, sorry, side tangent, because they just go off in just the weirdest directions, um, which is very fun. Uh, Tom Carty uh, and Eden Lacey taking over GMing of Dragon Friends, bringing us into Nick's question. Uh, I'm going to throw you under the bus slightly here, Luna. If people want to email this podcast, do you know the email address that people would 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 send to? Is it podcast at ghostfireofficial.com? Oh, you're so close. So you're close. so close. You definitely get a B plus on that one. Okay. Uh, it is podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Oh, yeah, of course, because um, Ghostfire Official is the Twitch handle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Twitch, yeah. <laughs> we tried to get Ghostfire Gaming. I think somebody else already had it. I yes, because anyway. I have shouted out Ghostfire Gaming on Twitch many times and then realized it was not you guys. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I've been like, I'm going to be on Ghostfire Gaming. Here's the channel. And then I'm like, wait, 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 wrong channel. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just some random person. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that yeah. person is welcome. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so next question asking uh, how to keep factions organized when you're building worlds. I don't know what's with the hand motion. Uh, would you recommend kind of faction sheets uh, or some sort of system that uh, makes running factions not just easier for the GM to keep everything in mind, but also the players to, to realize who's who and who wants what? So this is okay. <laughs> I'm about to bring up something. That was, um, it is simultaneously a bit of a deep cut for my channel, but also something that um, was bizarrely popular, but, but kind of controversial because it's something I learned in my ancient history class when I was in high school um, that was to help us structure essays. And I call it the SPERM principle. Um, SPERM in this case is an acronym. It stands for social, political, economic, religious, and military. And this is my basis for any kind of faction design at any point. So if I'm designing a city, I look for, okay, who, what's what's the group that is going to represent the social sort of aspect of this city? What's the social aspect? Is it based around theater? Is it based around the tavern? Is it based around, you know, and then there's, okay, what's the economic heart? Okay. Is there a fisherman's guild? I don't know that sort of a thing. Um, and I try to fill out and, and you don't have to give each one equal weight or importance. You, you might be like, okay, well, this city is based on Sparta. So military and religious might be the two big ones and the other ones can kind of fall to the wayside, but it is kind of the, the basis on which I, um, structure cities, factions, things like that. And then within the faction, I will try to kind of reflect that same cycle again of the social, political, economic, religious, and military. Some people get so shy, they call it the MERPS uh, <laughs> <laughs> principle, um, which I think is silly. Um, it just sperm is a word, use it. Um, but the, yeah, the, there are a lot of people as well who advocate for um, adding magic, adding an extra M to the end. I don't do that because I think uh, if you're running a magical setting, magic should have a place in each of those uh, sure. sort of factors. Um, the only other thing beyond that, I, I I like to, I don't know what it is. I Maybe it's a short-term thing, but in terms of my campaigns, I'm currently obsessed with the seasons. And so if it's going to be like a long-term thing, I tend to make a calendar, like a seasonal calendar where I'm like, okay, what's the thing that's going to happen in each season? 
Um, and then I do the same thing for any major factions um, or organizations that are at play in the world as well. I'm like, okay, assuming the players don't interfere, what's the thing that this faction is going to achieve in the summer? Um, those are those are ways. So I keep a calendar and sperm. <laughs> <laughs> Just reminded of that community someone, episode suddenly. Someone clip me out, clip that also out of sperm. context. Yeah. <laughs> well, it will be. <laughs> the the question uh, for me about factions is having them can be great. Uh, do the players care? Do the players care about the factions that that you're uh, introducing? And if they don't then keeping track of them is kind of a moot point unless they are somehow going to be brought in front of the players to make them care. Uh, what I like to do with factions for the players that will care about them is A, can the players join them? And if so, now you have a direct way to keep track of them, which is how well are the players that are in that faction accomplishing their goals? If they're not something that the players are a part of, but you still want to keep track, have a number system, and it could be anything. It could be one to five, and they start out at a three. What does moving to a two, which is, we'll say, better? One is the best the faction can be when if, if, if it achieves their goals. So as the players do things or fail to do things, it moves this scale for the faction from a three to a two or a three to a four. And what do you show the players then to show that? Uh, oh, this faction that you've ignored, they've asked for your help, you've ignored them. Now the orphanages in the city have closed and there are all sorts of horrible things happening. That's because of you. They need to understand that's because of them. And that's mm. a way to keep track of that. So have a number and then have a consequence for how it plays out in your campaign. If you can do that, you're probably getting your characters, if not invested, at least aware of the faction and what it what it means and what they have done to it through their action or inaction. And sperm. And <laughs> sperm. Also sperm. Dungeons of Drakenheim has a relatively good advice on this because it it has um, a lot of factions in it. It's a fairly faction-heavy campaign. Um, and I believe that advice, if I'm not making this up, although I would run it the same way, so maybe I'm making it up, um, is to kind of treat factions like a, an NPC that can do multiple things because that NPC has multiple kind of members of it. Uh, generally, I tend to, when I create a faction, create a, a, a more fleshed-out leader of that faction and then like a more fleshed-out lieutenant of that faction who is generally the one the party will interact with more until they've you know, either really upset the faction or really um, helped them. Um, and, and that's kind of it. I don't, you know, you don't need to give names to every third, you don't even need five members of a faction to make it a faction, you know, otherwise players do start to become confused as to who's who and what faction they're from and why they're doing that and what, what's going on and that sort of thing. Um, it also de like defining factions can be weird as well, right? Because like, is your villain and what they're doing off screen, because I'm often a proponent of like role playing your villain off screen between sessions, making them react to the players and deciding, okay, what, what is the world state going to be the next time we play? Because the players accomplished this in the last session. How is the villain reacting to that off screen? Um, you know, I, I, I run factions kind of similarly sometimes as well. Um, 
yeah, le- less less individual names and probably try not to overdo it with the number of factions either. Yeah, Roman in chat says start with three factions, neutral, ally, enemy, as someone who has sure. had too many factions. You can always <laughs> add more later if you want to. <laughs> we literally recorded this up uh, this also <laughs> earlier on Master Dungeons. <laughs> this is so weird. This is like I, uh, wow, we're maybe like you're a time traveler, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I feel like it. I feel like it. <laughs> well, I, um, I don't have any anything to add, but I'm taking all this in because I'm currently about to start running like a, a two warring crime families in Waterdeep arc right. for my party. And like, I'm really bad at managing politics and fact. So this is great. Great advice. Thank you. <laughs> for, just for me personally. <laughs> Luna, because I know you've got a hard out before we jump into the next question, uh, I will let you dart off. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I very much appreciate you dropping in, filling in for James this week. Um, where can folks find you if they want to follow your YouTube channel, see you on Twitch, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, you can find me everywhere on the internet at Lubuffin. Uh, if you're watching live, here's my name. <laughs> Wait, I'm <laughs> typing it in the chat. Um, yeah, I normally stream a couple of times a week. I just started a owner's run of Baldur's Gate yesterday and I almost died and it was the most stressful 20 minutes of my life. Incredible. Dale was there. <laughs> yeah, was, I just watched you wild. antagonize a bunch of tieflings. So, Look, um, you know, Sometimes you make silly choices in life. Um, no, no, I get it. <laughs> Privacy doesn't exist to Luna. No, I got that. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, no, to Jester. I'm playing as Jester Lavore. Privacy right, definitely no, does okay. not exist to Jester Lavore. Um, <laughs> right, but yeah, so everywhere um, on the internet at Lubuffin, I do also make some YouTube videos and things. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just around. I always have such a great time here. So thank you for having me. Like it's in my favorite guest spot ever to do. So. Thank you. Aww, Aww, you. Thank you for joining us. Thank no you worries. for joining. We really appreciate we it. We love all having right. you. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> See you, Luna. Uh, and then we all might have moved across in our frames uh, because Luna's yeah. disappeared. So. Direct, Dante. Uh, <laughs> I, ch- I checked with him first, so it's we okay. We can't be controlled. <laughs> um, uh, Sean's question being updated Dungeons & Dragons lore. Does D&D lore need an update slash refresh? Even long-time players uh, struggle to name characters from the kind of established D&D lore from Faerun, Forgotten Realms, uh, or whether they're plane-hopping kind of adventurers. Uh, And even then, if you can name a few, uh, there's very little emotional connection to them or very little detail that you can give about them. And I kind of agree with this. Like, I can name, you know, Tasha. I can name Saz Tam because of the movie, basically. I can name a Sererak, Vecna. Um, more villains than I can, like, good guys. Um, and so... I straight up... Yeah, okay. This is... Sorry, you mentioned a Sererak. I, on Twitter at some point, was like, who's a Sererak? And Colville <laughs> was like, he's on the cover of a book you've looked at a thousand times. Little did Colville know... I don't even own the DMG, but but once it was pointed out to me who it was, I was like, I've got a sticker of that guy on my laptop. I just assumed that was Vecna, but I guess now that I'm paying attention, he's not missing his left eye. So that actually does check out. And then it even developed further because I had thought Xanathar was a guy. I thought he was just a guy. Right. I probably was combining in some way Xanathar with... Um, with Volo, uh, and then discovering that that Xanathar was a beholder was a very shocking moment for me. Um, 
So, you know, even when you can recognize some of the names floating around, it doesn't mean that you know the law. Uh, I thought that the cover of the DMG was Lich Guy. Like, I didn't realize that was a character because it's the giant on the cover of the player's handbook, a dude. Very true. And I was running Tomb of Annihilation, and I knew that it was a Sererak on the cover of Tomb of Annihilation, and I still didn't draw the the conclusion that that was also Mr. DMG. Um, there, there's definitely a... a issue here which is kind of harkens back to what we were saying i think it was last week when we were talking about the tv show or the movie um with the Dragonlance tv show maybe it was the week before and it was kind of like well what world do they set things in because D isn't really a world with stories in it or at least not well-known ones or or it's not really a world with a canon, you know what I mean? Like Star Wars has a canon. If you're playing in the Star Wars role-playing game, you're probably playing around the edges of the established story, um, whereas D&D is a world to facilitate storytelling, which makes it, by definition, difficult to have established characters that you have emotional connections to. Sorry, I want to get that out, but Sean, you look like you wanted to say something. No, you've said it all, right? This is a role-playing game. It's not a movie. It's not a TV show. It's not a novel. It's a role-playing game in which you are the main character. You are the hero. So you don't need other heroes to look up to. In fact, if you Mm. do have other heroes to look up to, if an adventure introduces that hero over there, everyone gets upset. Though this is our story. We don't want Elminster, Drist, you name it, coming into my story and solving everything for me. If I wanted that, I would play a video game or I would read a book. I want this to be about my character. And it's absolutely correct. I think it's reflected as well in things like, you know, Baldur's Gate 3 in the movie, you see these, they they invent new heroes. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not jumping in with established here. We're inventing new heroes who it's their story, it's their time to shine, they have to come into the light and do this good thing. The, the characters that do get to make sort of little cameo appearances and be exciting are the villains mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of that same thing, because it's not them coming in and solving your problems. It's, oh, no, we're facing the biggest problem. Mm. We're facing Vecna. It's it's like, oh, okay, so it's allowed to come in and wreck your day <laughs> because that's something <laughs> for you to overcome. That's exciting um, versus if, you know, I love Zank. Maybe I would be excited for Zenk to show up in my game, but I would also be worried that Zenk would would steal my glory. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Zenk in particular because kind of famously behind the scenes, I believe they had said that Zenk was originally in the original script meant to be Drizzt, and that, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and that they kind of changed it probably in the scripting phase at some point. Um, I can't remember the reason they gave as to why they decided to change it, and I think it might have been because he was too big a character to kind of step into this cameo role functionally, serve the story in more than a cameo capacity, and then kind of disappear again. It was kind of like, why doesn't he stick around with the rest of the party for the rest of the the movie? Right. Um, I think that was I though, think- that was like a tongue in cheek poke at the DM PC, right? The the one right. that steps in. It was sort of like, a, yeah, we a wink. We recognize that. He is best at everything, virtuous to a fault, won't even swerve around the stone. It was absolutely perfect. And it was. He's going to 1v5 these immortal bad guys, and then he's going to walk away into the horizon over a rock. 
Right. And, and we old time gamers or just gamers in general recognize that as, oh, that's the DM's, you know, PC who comes in and just does everything and then walks away. Uh, yeah, it was perfectly, perfectly done. Here's a question that's kind of, again, more speculation and is my editorializing over the top of Sean's question, which is, is this a problem for what sees licensing strategy with D&D when the most recognizable name in the brand is D&D, you know, whether as if, if it's Star Wars, you've got Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and more recently the Mandalorian who kind of step into these roles where people have emotional connections to those characters. So a Mandalorian Magic the Gathering card is, is going to have uh, an emotional drive to want to own that card. Whether as with D&D, the only people that really want to um, connect with these characters are, are probably like older um, older gamers who, who remember these characters from when those novels and, and stories were relevant back in second edition or whatever, you know. Um, even Xanathar, they don't really, in his own book, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, they don't really yeah. flesh out Xanathar. He just kind of comments, you know, gives glib Kind of moment. I don't think it's necessarily a problem for them. There are different like avenues you can take, right? Um, I think it becomes a problem if they want to run with the recognizable characters off of whom we can make bank. But you can you can trademark all sorts of things. Like I I am actually surprised that they haven't lent more heavily into um, toys based on monsters. I I'm. Sure. I'm genuinely surprised that there aren't you know a million variations of owlbear plushies um there was a, a thing i was reading online the other day where someone made a really good point about um brands where they 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 can stand their toys can stand separately from their sort of parent media right so pokemon was the the great example because yeah there is a, a card game, there is the video games, there is the TV show, there are the toys. But any kid can love their Bulbasaur toy without even watching the show, without knowing about the game. Someone can play the card game and never watch the TV show. Um, sure. You know, you can, you can independently love any sort of branch of that thing. A toy is a medium of its own. Um, and so you could, uh, th there definitely is room for Wizards of the Coast to um, sort of embrace other branches of uh, media without it having to literally be like, I don't know, story-based, character-based. We talked about before, here's role-playing games, here's the right industry, and sometimes they cross, sometimes they don't. That has always been the case, believe it or not. Back when the Dragonlance books were coming out, did some people play D&D and love the Dragonlance books? Yes. But I saw more than, I would say more than not, there were the people who read the Dragonlance books, loved them, couldn't care less about the game. There were the people right. that played the game that despised the Dragonlance books because <laughs> they were a, in their eyes, a corruption of the game, right? They, 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 were, they weren't D&D, but they pretended to be. And that has been going on since the game started in one way or another. So when you say, we, you know, I, if they could have made money off, off, off Owlbear plushies, it's not like Hasbro doesn't know how to make toys, right? They would have been doing that. I don't think there's a market for it. 
because I don't think D&D players are going to go by the Owlbear plushie because they're at least in my experience up to a point, they're not going to go by the Owlbear plushie because that's just kitschy. What? And the people I think that. That's interesting. Sorry, uh, go ahead. No, the, the, the people who uh, but would buy the Owlbear plushie have 27 other things that are cute and cuddly and interesting. And they don't know that that's an owlbear. They know it's this weird thing that maybe has feathers and a beak, but is it what? But look over there, there's Han Solo or there's whatever. I'm going there. So I think it's, it's the worst of both worlds when you're dealing right. with the audience that role-playing games break. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> All I was going to say is I, I genuinely am just very interested in it at the moment. So so the, the thing that comes to mind is that currently an, an extremely popular toy is Huggy Wuggy, which is um, from, from a, an indie horror game uh, that people play on stream or on YouTube or whatever. But separate to that, completely separate to that, it's just become a really popular uh. toy that kids love. I, I was driving the other day and I saw a dad with two kids and each of those kids was holding a Huggy Wuggy in each hand. That's a lot of Huggy Wuggies Is for one household. Huggy <laughs> four Huggy Wuggies. I if you have two kids and each kid has a Huggy Wuggy <laughs> in each hand, how many Huggy so Wuggies do you have? This um, is a, the, a, a tabletop role-playing game? No, no, uh, an indie video game, an indie yeah. horror video game. This um, is the exact thing we would well, have sold yeah, yeah, out of indie yeah, games. But, but the interesting thing is that the attachment seems to be not at all to the actual indie game itself. It seems to have kind no. of developed a life of its own where maybe some parents got the Huggy. They're like, oh, there's a Huggy Wuggy toy. I'll get that for my kid because that's funny. And then other kids see it and they go, I want that thing. I, it's it's a it, kind of a phenomenon, all of it. It's all I, of its own. And it makes me think as well of the fact that there's a big factor when it comes to toys where it's like, Yes, there is the aspect that is what does the kid want? What is the kid interested in? But a lot of what it comes down to with toys is what are the adults in their lives going to buy for them? And that's why something like Star Wars, a parent who loves Star Wars is going to buy a Star Wars thing mm -hmm. for their kid, mm -hmm. no matter what. It doesn't matter if the kid has not seen Star Wars yet. I think, I, I think yeah. to, to slightly disagree, I think the step that you might be missing there, Dale, is the, because I, I thought this about Pokemon as well, when you were like, a kid can love their Bulbasaur without loving the, the TV show. But I don't think it's the TV show that's the core of the Pokemon brand. It's the video game, right? Ah, uh, but that's and because think, you came from the video game. For a lot of people, they watched that show. They never played the games. Sure, and I'm sure that's true. But I think for Huggy Wuggy as well, there's a video game there. But even if the kid hasn't watched, hasn't played the video game, you know, video games tend, especially indie horror games like that, tend to invade YouTube and Twitch culture in a way that I think uh, young kids would access and then kind of fall in love with that thing, I'm even if they've never that. touched the I, game. I agree with the core of what you're saying, and I think that's, uh, you know, the heart of, of what this discussion was online was that um, kids have access to this YouTube, you know, mm. culture that, that plays this game a lot. But I'm, I'm not entirely convinced of the, the demographic of those let's plays being kids of this age. So I is, I'm, I think there's absolutely room for it, um, but I'm not ready to leap on board and go, oh, well, that's the explanation. Um, 
because sure sure yeah i don't know a, a huggy wuggy plushie is the exact sort of thing we would have sold out of eb back in the day when we got you know plushies of uh, or, or, or toys you know action figures of five five nights at freddy's and 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 stuff like that that would come in we got was it is it the ink boy i don't even know i sound so old suddenly um who we got a bunch of toys that just completely didn't sell which i thought was hilarious um rakio in chat cup, says cup, i gave my man, daughter a cthulhu doll years before she could even access horror stories she just thought it was cute okay mm-hmm. there you go fair enough fair enough right and you knew it was cthulhu which also makes a difference Mm. Uh, mm. because you were you know, engaged enough in the community to know, okay, that's what that is. It's weird looking, but I know what it is, and you think it's cute, and together we come together to make that purchase. If you hadn't mm. known what it was and the, the, and you know, a child was like, oh, look at that. If, if it wasn't clear to you what it was, that might have been, there might have been, not with everybody, but might have been a hesitation. But since you knew what it was, everybody came, comes together and it's great. Sure. And, and in some ways, it's just scale, right? It's just scale. This many people watch or play video games. This many people watch television shows. This many people play role-playing games. The scale is always going to be in favor of selling what's most out there, what's most available and recognized. And you know what? There is a whole um, segment of, of the industry that does particularly target D&D players who are parents. Like we were just talking about how everyone everyone we know is now having kids and there are babies at the table. We were just talking about that. But I think that the successful branch of that right now are the ones who, you know, you sell the little the little baby jumpsuits that say, I don't know, I uh, my dad's a rogue or, you know, those those kind of um right. slightly trashy, slightly cute uh <laughs> baby baby clothes that it it really says more about the parents. You're using your baby as a billboard to express your personality. I, sure. That sounded very critical, but I do not mean that as a criticism. Do, that's that's fine. Um, no, baby's like your play character, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it is also, it's, um, you know, I, I think, I and I mean, I, I haven't thought about this deeply, so I don't know if I'll stand by it for much longer than saying it, but I wonder whether, you know, the 80s changed toys. I don't know whether I've seen toys that aren't connected to some other property. And it's it's sometimes the toy is a is an idea and so then we'll make a show to sell the toy. Um, sometimes there's a show and we'll sell the toy that is connected to the show. All the, but the, but there's always this kind of interconnected family of products that are selling each other. Uh, much like Candela Obscura. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, you know, you you think back there was a time there was a time when people would just be like, I don't know, I made a, a tiny woman <laughs> and we'll sell that. Um, Good old Polly Pocket. Well, um, okay, I'll make it even smaller. Yeah, a tiny, Pocket. tiny woman. That's, tiny, that's where I went. A teeny, tiny woman. Did I Polly Pocket the, not have a TV show? Uh, I just always assumed uh, no, she did. But I know not. Mighty Max did, but I think, again, those were toys before. I miss um, Mighty Max. Sorry, Hasbro. We keep talking about Mattel toys. Uh, those were um, <laughs> Hasbro should do better then. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the one toy company that's probably slightly immune to that is Lego. I know they do a lot of um, licensing brands now, but I also think Lego can get away with being like, "It's a house." I don't know. It's yeah. a it's an emergency car. I would love um, to see numbers on how their generic sets sell compared to compared. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, the one thing that uh, folks have brought up a couple of times in the chat. I apologize. I, I didn't uh, note these comments down, but I- the 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 more recent opportunity that D&D potentially has for creating characters that f- 
folks broadly have an emotional attachment to uh, is the party members from Baldur's Gate. Uh, could they sell, you know, a, a Karlak action figure, a Karlak statue, um, or a, a Karlak plushie or an Astarian plushie or that sort of thing? Because I think uh, more than just the video game, I think Baldur's Gate has probably invaded kind of the streamer space in a way that people who have never played the game might have attachments to those characters because they've watched every version of a Starian story, you know, through to the end. Um, the interesting question there for me is who owns Karlak as a mm. character? She's a tiefling or she's a, is she a tiefling or is she a half demon? I'm not quite sure. But she's, she's a D&D thing that Wizards licensed but the specific character is probably owned by Larry, and I would assume so. They would it would be a complex kind of licensing deal. I don't know. That just fascinated me. The thought of it. It feels like it crosses over into the realm of um, collectors' items more than toys. Sure. Which I mean is is a totally valid like it's it's its whole own industry. Um, but it is I you know I sit here and I think. I wouldn't buy a Carlac toy. I love Carlac. I wouldn't buy a Carlac toy. So why is that? And I think it's just because I'm not a collector, you know? Um, sure, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy it for a friend's kid uh, and I wouldn't buy it for me. <laughs> That's, that, <laughs> that felt so bam. <laughs> I'm just pondering, That's all. You know what else, though, is I wonder, you know, with the D&D characters, there's a separation. The reason you buy a kid a Captain America shield, the reason you buy them Iron Man gauntlets or Hulk fists or whatever, a Thor hammer, is because that kid wants to become that character, whether D&D kind of actively encourages you not to become Elminster or Volo, it encourages you to create your own character. And so the paraphernalia of Volo or whoever just isn't, as interesting to to a to a child, you know, separate from the fact that Captain America is an infinitely more popular, more renowned character. For sure. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, with that out of the way, speaking of things that need to finish up, this podcast definitely does. So we are going to jettison out of here. Uh, if you have enjoyed listening, you can join us on Twitch at. Uh, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time at uh, twitch.com, twitch.tv slash ghostfire underscore. Oh, my God. I'm just going to start this again. Dante, you can do a little snip snip. Um, Speaking of ending things, we're going to end this podcast right now uh, before we wear out our welcome. Uh, If you want to join us on Twitch, you can at twitch.tv slash ghostfire underscore official, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on a Monday or Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Australian Eastern Time. Um, Or you can find us on YouTube, like, subscribe, all the YouTube pleasantries or any other audio platform. If you want to give us a star rating, help us grow and get out to more uh, folks out there, this preeminent source of Dale's tabletop RPG news. Um, uh, Dale needs to know the news. Only you can help keep the Lorecast alive. Uh, My name's been Ben Byrne here with Sean Merman, Dale Kingsmill, joined today by Luna LaBoffin. Thank you so much, Luna, for joining us. And we will catch you all again next week for another episode. The Eldritch Lawcast. The end. I can't get that high. No, no way. <laughs> you do the best. Daniel Andrew. Ah. 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 Ah.
It's just um, like an elven choir. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, no, we've gone a sophisticated horror movie. Uh, I uh, died in a horrible way. That's an Eddie Izzard bit. Uh, just to throw that out there. Um, 